Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, we're back again, and I'm super excited about our guest today. Uh, this is a friend that I've uh, known for a long time, but, but never really met in person yet. I, I'm shocked. You just brought up the fact that uh, we have not had anybody from the communications world on yet. Guess what? Shenanigans. It, it really is. Like, we done an episode on it before. Actually, we did it when, uh, in the first season, uh, Chief Adams had talked about his respect for the communications people and uh, the work that they put in and the overtime and all of those things. And that was coming from a leadership standpoint. And then I think both of us just realized that it is our first, I mean, it's disgusting. Come on, we got to get we it together. We are here today. And this is my friend, Tracy Eldridge. Tracy, welcome to the podcast of No One Fights Alone. Thank you so much for having me here. It's interesting being on the other side of the microphone because I have my podcast. And, and so to be on this side, it's always a unique experience when you're on the other side. Well, Tracy's the uh, founder of On Scene First, which is a training and consultant company for all first responders. And you do have your own podcast, On Scene First. Yes, sir. I do. I do. Well, I'm so glad you're here. And it's finally, uh, it's finally arrived. We've been talking about this for a while. We, uh, we've been trying to figure out a time to get, get Tracy on, but Tracy, tell us a little bit about who you are. What, uh, and, and before we dive into, and you've got some, you've got some hands in some great things, but what really drives Tracy Eldridge to do what she does in life? What's your, what's your story? Oh, um, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll start off with, um, I, I have a drive and a passion for helping people. I, I've had that since I was uh, a small child. I always thought I wanted to be a nurse, uh, but I realized you had to do math and things like that, and that that wasn't my my strong suit. And when I was getting ready to leave high school, I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. So my dad, who was a Boston police officer, um, not at the time. He he was the Boston police officer. Um, the year I was born, he got injured and, and kind of went out injured on duty. Uh, but he encouraged me to become a police officer. And so where I live, it's very rural. There's, you know, we're small towns. We're not civil service. They don't have big police departments. So you're usually getting hired you know, by walking in and filling out an application. And so I went to the my local police department and they weren't hiring. I went to a neighboring police department and they weren't hiring. Uh, but the neighboring police department had said, we're hiring dispatchers. Um, and just, you know, like you guys, I, I, I didn't see the dispatcher. I, di I didn't know what the dispatcher was. So I, I was like, well, what does a dispatcher do? And they basically, in a nutshell, told me I get to tell people where to go and get paid for it. So I, I decided to, um, to take them up on that, and I became a part-time dispatcher. I then got a part-time job in the town that I live in because immediately I fell in love with dispatching. I, I, my, my goal, as with many 911 communications folks, they will step in the door to get their foot in the door to be a police officer or a firefighter. And I was no different. And when I worked my first shift alone, I remember I had an amazing trainer, um, Joanne, and she passed her passion on to me. And I remember walking into dispatch that first midnight shift and, and she was leaving and I was scared to death. And I was like, Oh, what is this, what is this going to entail? Like, cause I'm going to be in here by myself. So this was a small agency. We're in there by ourselves. And that night 911 rang and it rang multiple times. And there was a, a pretty serious call going on where there was a firearm involved with the officer that was out there and, and everybody was safe. Uh, but I realized two things that night. Uh, one, I did not want to be a police officer anymore because I do not want to be chasing people around outside in the middle of the night with a gun. And two, if somebody was going to pay me to talk for a living, that was the job that I needed to be doing. So I stayed there for a little bit, ended up full time in my town, Rochester. And about six years into my, my career as being a dispatcher, I had taken over the 9-1 center. I put a lot into my policies, my procedures, my training, uh, taking care of my staff. And 
the irony is I, I'm a people-driven leader and, and my leaders, the folks that were responsible for me and my uh, growth and support failed me. And I had a manager who was uh, the town manager at the time was pretty difficult uh, after years of not being difficult. So at, there was a point where I was his, I, I, I would say I was like a good kid. They, I, I, I never had any issues. He supported everything I did. He was kind. And, and I never had an issue with him until I kind of stuck up for myself for a couple of things. And once I did that, it, it created a, a very toxic environment. He, he pushed back um, so much so that, that I, I, I would say that I got injured. Um, I, I ended up with a mental health injury. And what he had done in that aspect is ripped off the Band-Aid to some wounds that had not healed from, from my past life. Um, abusive relationships, abuse in every aspect of my life from a young age. And he sent me down a really dark path. And it got to a point where it was either going to be me or the job. And there was a moment where um, I had had enough and had a method and a means. And I, I don't think I need to get too much into that. But um, I had to make the decision that it was time for me to, to leave my 9-1 center. And it was a very hard choice to make. So I won't get into all the details of, of how I ended up uh, where I did. I, I went to work for Rapid SOS, which is a technology company that was very successful in providing location-based um, uh, device-based location for 911 calls. And they started out as an app company. I was part of a wonderful team that was able to deliver this to the majority of the 911 centers across the country. And then at the end of 2020, um, I had realized that in my four years at, at Rapid SOS, I was starting to kind of be funneled into this one lane while I was there. And for somebody like me, and I say somebody like me, that's, that's somebody who is high energy, people driven and has ADHD, being in one lane was not conducive to my happiness. Um, I was more or less a drunk driver on a six lane highway. I needed to be in a whole bunch of different places doing a whole bunch of different things. So I did what every normal person would do during a pandemic. I quit my perfectly good paying job that I loved and I started on scene first to be able to provide training and consulting and mental health and wellness resources and throw parties and fun events and, and love on public safety in, in any way that I choose. So when folks ask me what I, what I actually do at my company, um, my motto is saving lives on both sides of the call. But the real answer is whatever I want. I get to do whatever I want because I'm the boss. So to put a little context to that story, uh, how many years specifically were you uh, behind the radio or in, in leadership in leadership within that? I shouldn't ignore that as well. Yep. So I was in, I was a 91 telecommunicator for just under 20 years and um, 13 of those were in a leadership position. And I, I really believe that if I had the opportunity to go back and be that leader again in the center, I'd probably have done things um, differently. I, I have learned and grown so much as a leader that I, I wish I had a do over, but you know, I had to, I had to have those blind spots so I could grow. Right. So, um, I think it's important if you're in a leadership position that you are constantly evolving and, and growing because not everybody knows how to put their people first. Well, I want to spend some time on the leadership piece, but I think, I think while we have you here and, and, and what, one of the things that resonated, uh, really early for Austin and I in this conversation is that we have not had, uh, a communications person on our podcast. So if you if you don't mind me asking, would you mind actually maybe detailing a little bit of the challenges specific to that culture or that discipline of of uh, the first responder community? Because they're unique. They're 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 very unique in what they do. Um, some of the personality makeup. Some of the challenges. What what are some of those things that are different than 
being out there. I know you mentioned you don't want to chase them out there in the middle, but you have your own, those communications folks, they have their own hurdles. What, what are some of those? Well, I, I actually have a sticker that's, that uh, is going to be available in the very near future. And, and I can literally sum it up in one word um, and one sentence. My ears have seen things that my brain will never forget. So I'll say that again. My ears have seen things that my brain will never forget. And and my friend Carol Starcher from from New um, New Hanover and in, in Virginia had said that in one of my classes because I was referring to the fact that um, I, I will ask in in one of my training classes I will ask how much do you see when you're when you're behind the desk, and they'll look at me like what what do, what do you mean what do I see? I don't see anything. I hear everything. And I said, Oh, really? You don't, you don't see things. And, and I, I said, I had an experience with a firefighter after a mass casualty uh, drill that we did. And after we did the drill, he, we, we were talking about all of the things that need to happen. And they talked about the critical incident debriefing after the incident or, you know, diffusing what, whichever way folks go. And one of the folks had said, I said, don't forget your dispatchers and I could just see a look on on one of the the firefighters faces from another town and he says yeah but you guys don't see what we see and I was like I wasn't sure where that was going or why it was even said because you know we're on the same team no one fights alone right like we're we're dealing with our own stuff and I realized um, in a moment that it was a teachable moment for him, that he had just made an error of ignorance, not intention. <laughs> and that was what I was going to believe. Uh, so what he, what I said to him was, well, in fairness, uh, we don't actually see what you see. However, I would like you to do a little exercise for me. And it was, it was around Christmas time that we had the drill. And I said, I don't want you to visualize a purple school bus with a pink Christmas tree on top and a naked Santa dancing around that Christmas tree. And I paused. And he said, touche. And I said, as soon as I started talking and describing something, I am sure you started visualizing that, right? And in fact, what was on the top of your Christmas tree? And he laughed. It was the star that was in his home on his Christmas tree growing up as a child. He put that star on this Christmas tree on top of a school bus with the naked Santa. And so what I explained to him is, while we don't see what you see, we see things and and sometimes we add our own things in there, whether it's a family member of ours that is similar to the person in age and, and things like that. The other thing that is a huge challenge is I think sometimes, and I'm going to laugh about this. I, I'm, I'm, I like to be funny because sometimes the topics are heavy um, and I'll share just this brief little story about one of my officers. He was a brand new officer. We got a call. Uh, from another jurisdiction saying that someone wanted to uh, take their own life and that they were supposedly in our town and his name was this and he was in this type of vehicle and he said something about Vaughn Street or Vaughn and we had a Vaughn Hill Road and this person grew up in our town. So it made sense that these things were all um, taking place. So I had put it out over the air and I gave all the information that I had. And this new officer came back and said, do we have a description of what he's wearing? And I said, no, we don't at this time. The, the information's coming in third party. I'll, I'll get you further. So I find out that the truck is green. He has his dog with him. Uh, it's a golden retriever. And he does have a rope. And he's stating that he's going to use that rope. And, and so I put that information out. And that officer comes back. And he says, yeah, uh, S2, do we have a description of what he's wearing? And I'm like, nope, but, but when I get that information, you, you'll be the first to, to get that information. And, and I could just feel myself getting irritated with this officer. Like, does he think for one second that I am sitting in dispatch going, I know what he's wearing and I'm not telling. And I think that's a challenge for us as well, is that there are so many things being thrown at the telecommunicator at one time that we literally have to sort and process what is relevant, what's not relevant. 
you know, and in my mind, what I really wanted to say to that officer, who's one of my dear friends even today, and I, I'll still pick on him about it, is um, I had given you so much information, right? Like I had given you the color of the car, his name, Vaughn Street, all, like the dog, the golden retriever, like all the things. And And again, that was another teachable moment is... I think sometimes there's a disconnect between the field responder and the folks that are inside and forgetting that we're, we're all trying to accomplish the same goal, right? And, and if I can't give you what you want or you're not giving me what I want, then it can create this kind of conflict sometimes. And, and just like in a family, we'll get irritated with each other, but at the end of the day, we'll, we'll have each other's backs no matter what. So I think there's, I think those would probably be two of the challenges. Uh, but now here's my biggest challenge. And this is something that I put a lot of work into uh, teaching 911 leaders, uh, directors, deputy directors, supervisors, how to better understand themselves as a leader, but also how to understand their staff and to really drive the aspect home that we have to put more into being people-driven leaders versus task-driven leaders. And I do a lot with the DISC human behavior model. and DISC helped me in my recovery journey because there are a lot of very strong, dominant personalities that I have a challenge with. And it took a lot of therapy and education and training through DISC to understand that uh, people don't do things to me. They do them for themselves. And sometimes I would get in the way. And so to be able to have an understanding that when they were short or direct and to the point or um, you know, did something, asked a lot of questions, which made me doubt myself. It was all a part of who their personality was and that it wasn't a personal attack. So I want folks to really understand that the people that they surround themselves with, um, are, we're all unique in our own way. And if I really understand the fact that, so for me, as a, I'm in the DISC human behavior model, I'm an IS, which is an extroverted, introverted people person. Meaning for me, people come first all the time. No matter what I do, I'm going to worry about how it's going to make people feel. Um, they're going to walk away with a good experience. And then there are folks on the other side that are task-driven. And so if, if I'm working with a task-driven person, um, it's going to be challenging for both of us because we both have to realize that we're going to get to the same goal. We're just going to get there differently. So the leadership in our 911 centers uh, right now, as with, with most, most places, uh, we have to get better at being better leaders uh, because some of our leaders are contributing to the mental health breakdown of our, of our teams. You know, I, that, that really resonates with me. I, I, I have to attribute my, uh, I don't want to speak too heavily to that, my understanding of the communication side back all the way back to my break-in. My break-in partner actually made me go in and sit and work the radio uh, for a day. Good. And, but, but he yeah. did that, that wasn't on the list to be done, but he did that solely because he came up through, uh, the communication side and knew the disconnect that you're referring to. Uh, he understood that disconnect from, uh, what's happening out in the field with what's happening that back behind the radio. So that really resonates with yeah. me. And I, you know, I would encourage anybody that's active. If you haven't been behind the radio, you should go try that out a little bit. Uh, it, it is definitely a challenging experience uh, working with uh, not being present on there, but you're seeing with your mind uh, and almost needing to see in the future. You're predicting things happening. Uh, and those communications people are amazing. Oh, absolutely. And and we, we I, I encourage it both ways. I would have my telecommunicators do ride alongs with the police officers and go hang out at the fire department for a little while because, you know, when my officer says that he's checking a building because there was an alarm activation, I have to be cognizant of the fact that if I come across that radio, I could be putting him in danger, right? So the timing of things. And, and so it is really important going both ways to make sure that you're aware of what it is that they're doing. And if they answer you um, and they're short, Right. This this was one of the things like I, I would always give my officers the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you you got one opportunity to be short with me on the radio. And then if it continued for the rest of the shift, you and I were going to have a chat. But for the most part, you know, they were good. And uh, but there are times where, you know, even just think about today and what we're seeing in society. I'm a 911 telecommunicator. 
there are some words that I do not want to hear come across that radio. And every time my officer is out on a motor vehicle stop, I'm their protector, right? I have to do whatever I can to protect them. And, and my hands are really tied from where I am. Uh, so if my officer is not answering me on the radio, yeah, I might get a little antsy. I might call the supervisor. I might call you again on the radio. Um, and then and that officer comes back and, and may, you know, snip something like, you know, I told you to stand by. And, and so now you have this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do good by you and protect you and make sure that you go home. But what that telecommunicator might not realize is when he pulled that vehicle over, somebody jumped out. They jumped out of the car and now they're dealing with an aggressive situation and they're trying to get the person back in the car or, or whatever. Um, so we have to really get better at not taking things personally in those moments. There, there's there's a time and a place. There's an adrenaline issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is okay to say, I'm sorry if I, if I wasn't kind to you in a situation. Um, everybody has to know that we're all fighting that same battle. But don't you feel like that's a little bit experiential driven as well? Because you have to experience a little bit of that uh, and, and build some trust there that uh, it's working on both ends towards, you know, a common goal of, and if you haven't yep. experienced that void of radio traffic uh, and know and understand that person's doing the best they can to come back, uh, then, then yep. uh, once you've actually got that behind you, you think, okay, I, I understand Tracy better or I understand Austin better. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's uh uh, very much an experiential based. Uh, and it's a ma it's a matter. It, it is that matter of respect, right? I remember when I first started as a baby dispatcher, it was 1996. And uh, the interwebs was not what it is today. Uh, but I remember going online and, and just searching stuff for 911 dispatchers, right? Like, the internet was a very different place. But I had I had found this thing that I was like, I'm going to say that to an officer one of these days. And I had it in my back pocket. And sure enough, you know, at some point in my career, I had one of those new officers that that thought he was invincible and he'd pull over motor vehicles and not call it into dispatch. And on this one occasion, he did that. He pulled over a vehicle and he came flying across the radio telling me to get 8-4 to his location. And I froze. I was like, I don't have your location. What is your location? And And he wasn't answering me. And that is not a good feeling. And while everything worked out well, as soon as my officer walked in the door, I got right up in his face and I said, you may know where you are and what you're doing. God may know where you are and what you're doing. But if your dispatcher doesn't know where you are and what you're doing, I hope you and God are on very good terms. <laughs> Don't do that to me again. And he was like, oh, I didn't even realize it. And, and that was that nugget that I had in my pocket. And I'm like, I'm going to use that someday. And I, and I got to use it. So you know, we do care. We do care. And, and when our officers are not answering us, it's, it's not good. It's well, not I really good. think, uh, and, and before we kind of move on to the, the some, I want to dive into some of the leadership and mental health uh, components that you focus on on a daily basis yeah. now. But I think before we leave that, the, uh, this communications piece, is there not a move within our country to actually, because they're, they're, they're ignored a lot. They're they're or forgotten or yep. maybe, maybe unintentionally, uh, ignored, but yet I feel like they're ignored on a lot of levels. Is there not a move for them? In fact, some states have already moved to adopt uh, communications within the first responder title. Uh, can you can yes. you speak to that at, at all? Yeah, uh, there is there's there's actually a Facebook page out there. So if anybody wants to go find it, it's uh nine I think it's nine one dispatchers as part of first responders, and that's a very active group that is working with different states and and trying to get folks moved into a classification. The OMB has nine one tele communicators listed as clerical workers. And it is not something that we take lightly and it is not to take away from clerical workers, right? Like everybody has their place, their roles are just as important, but they are very different roles. And when you look at a first responder, you know, there's a bunch of different definitions out there and there are folks that will fight you tooth and nail. You're not physically responding. You're not physically putting your yourself in harm's way. And, you know, our, our counter to that is 
uh, we are in most cases, 911 is the first person on the scene of most emergencies, not all but but a lot of the emergencies, we are the first people that are there. And as I mentioned before, it, it's not a matter of, okay, I may not be actually seeing it, but I am because the way most brains work is was we're going to visualize that. Uh, but we are mission critical. And I think that has to hold some value is to have a group of first responders or, or to have first responders acknowledged because they physically respond to the scene. But it was the 911 telecommunicator that started the emergency medical dispatch process with the mom of the two-year-old that was not breathing and gave appropriate CPR instructions. And by the time the field responder, first responders were there, that child was breathing on its own. And then when you see the save in the newspaper, it's, you know, Acme Fire Department saves a life. Such and such police department saves a life. And in reality, it was that call taker that went into what their mode that they were supposed to do with emergency medical dispatch instructions gave those instructions exactly the, the way they were supposed to be given. Everybody responds, gets there on scene. And now that call taker is sitting in a room by themselves. Not many folks checking on them to say, hey, how are you feeling after that call? I've had several of those calls and those calls are not ones that you want to hear. So to be able to, to be recognized as a true first responder, it's, it's important to us. We feel that we belong there. And, and while, yes, there are a handful of folks that don't, I think you think the majority of the folks is we're one team with one mission, and, and that's to save lives and everyone goes home. Agreed. I could not agree more. And, and to, to kind of piggyback on that, there are, and which kind of will lead into our next, uh, where I'd like for the conversation to dive into, they have similar, if not same, uh, experiences and trauma impact uh that people in the field do as well arguably if not yeah. more depending on i've heard uh you know a psychologist friend of mine talk about you know filling your mind uh, void with worst case scenario actually may uh, have a worse uh impression within that mental health piece than actually being there yeah. And there's, and then a lot of times there's no closure, right? Like if you look at my agency, we were a smaller agency. So I kind of always knew the end of the call. I knew, I knew how it ended. Um, either when we were located in the fire station, the firefighters would come back and, you know, we'd, we'd decompress. And, and when we moved into the police department, the same thing would happen there. But to not have that closure piece is, is really hard too, because it, it just kind of keeps looping in your head. And I remember my first debriefing that I attended, you know, a lot of folks will talk about getting together after, and I, I don't need to talk about my feelings, but I think it is important to realize, you know, everybody had a role. Everybody had a role in that, that incident. And to, to leave that telecommunicator out of that is it's just unjust but I think once we started recognizing that, yeah, we needed we need to be in those debriefings, and they're still left out today. They are still left out today, um, where it's you know, no, I'm not going to talk in in front of some dispatcher. You know, they weren't even there. What do they know? And and you know, on the flip side too, um, the dispatchers might be like, I don't need to do that. I was just doing my job, right? It, I'm just doing my job. There's nothing wrong. I'm fine. I'm fine. I think. At least on my end, I've noticed uh, when I was talking to a, a dispatcher recently that was seeking some mental health services, he defined himself as the forgotten few, right? Yeah. And then the lack of resolution is something that he was struggling and it was 27 years. Yeah. And he was in a very, very big agency. I think the department had, I think it was 2,700 police officers and, and count fire, everything like that. And it had gotten to the point where he was dreaming resolutions yep. to stories from 15 years ago. Yeah. 
and they come back. And, and you know, what's crazy too is, is um, there's an example that I give in one of my classes about how you think that you've put something away and, and you haven't, and something as simple as I, I had a call taker, take a call uh, for a two-year-old uh, that, that had drowned. And when the, when the grandmother had called, she hung up on the call taker and fast forward eight years and it's, and I say it's a routine call because it's a call that we handle all the time where an elderly male was was unresponsive and the caller hung up on my my call taker. And that was the call. The, the call that you didn't think would be the one that would rip that Band-Aid off because of getting hung up on. You would think that it would be something so similar, like somebody screaming something or saying something. But I don't think a lot of folks realize that the things that get attached to those calls and those that trauma could be something so random. I had another dispatcher explain to me about when I was talking about triggers and like these random weird things that come up as a trigger. She realized that the reason why she can't drink hot apples, uh, she can't drink apple cider anymore is because when she handled the worst call of her career. She had stopped at Dunkin' Donuts, got a hot apple cider in the fall. She would come into dispatch, take the cover off, put it on the, the console, and she could smell it, right? And um, when the call happened, that smell is there. So I don't think people understand the seriousness of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the textures, and and what role they play in in that that trigger. I got into an accident back in December and I do EMDR. That's my treatment of choice. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which saved my life. And I've probably done over well over a hundred sessions over the last five years. And when I got into that accident, I was okay. My car wasn't, but I got home and I was texting my girl and I'm like, Hey, do you have any appointments coming up? And she said, yeah, I have one tomorrow at 11 a.m. And I said, all right, I'll see you. And I'm coming in hot. And, and I knew that I needed to process all of it. The screeching tires, the metal sound, the beeping of the horns, the, the vision of, of my car spinning and seeing the Jersey barrier, all of that I had to offload and we don't. And if you don't have a way to offload it, it's going to be stuck inside of you like a lightning bolt. And until it finds its way out, it's just going to keep bouncing around doing damage. And so I, I encourage folks to find that that outlet because, you know, you don't realize what's going to, where's this trigger coming from? And, and a lot of the times you just start acting a fool, right? When you get triggered, <laughs> I know I did. All of a sudden I just want to, my husband's chewing next to me. He's eating watermelon and I'm like, what are you eating? Like, and he's like, watermelon. I'm like, it sounds like you're eating a bucket of bolts. <laughs> and he's like, I was triggered, <laughs> right? I think this is a perfect, yeah, this is a perfect segue into, like, it sounds like that you have sought services for things that you've experienced. Oh, yeah. This is the segue. And I want to talk, if you can, on your your personal experience with your department, if there were any resources available for communications. And then obviously you've, you're doing training and things like that. Are you the resource now for people or, or do they have some type of EAP service? Is there anything available to so, these people out there? So in my center, we, we did have an EAP, but I learned very quickly that it, when, so when I was going through my stuff, my, my PTSD, I mean, obviously it was buried for a long time, but my PTSD was brought on about this poor treatment from a boss. But what a lot of folks don't realize is it's like, that's not just what the PTSD is going to be around. It's going to be around all this stuff. So in other words, he opened Pandora's box, right? And so we don't just go, oh, okay, I'm starting to feel bad and, and I'm crying all the time and I'm withdrawing and I'm lashing out and I'm being angry and I don't want to go to work and I'm, I'm, I'm not fun anymore. Um, in fact, I'm mean and, and I just don't want to be around people and I don't want to go grocery shopping and, and all these things. We don't just go, oh, okay, this is PTSD and I should probably do something about this. Usually there's a pretty significant thing that happens. I did go to the, through the EAP. The problem was is 
you only got six appointments. So when I had the six appointments, it was like, I really connected with this person. And then in a weird twist of fate, our EAP did not take our work insurance. So yeah, right. So I always encourage folks like number one, before you get into your EAP, make sure that that they're going to take your works insurance because that was a problem. Now I have to go find somebody else, right? Um, EAPs are okay, you know, but I th first responders need something different. There, there are so many places that are doing amazing things. You guys are doing amazing things. Um, North Carolina, Nina, uh, which is a dispatch communications, they're doing wellness retreats. They're working with their clinicians and mental health professionals. I know some folks down in Alabama are doing the same. They have a, uh, a program where it is specific for first responders that if I am in crisis right now, what do I do? right? Because I'm sure you guys know what the, the mental health crisis is out there. And, and if I, when you asked Austin, am I a resource? Yes, I am a resource. Am I a trained mental health professional? No. Have I lived through it? Yes. Have I, do I have connections all across the country where I can go, hey, oh, you're in Oklahoma, go here. Uh, you're in Tennessee, go here. You're in Alabama, go here. And I can reach out to folks. So yes, I do love the fact that I, I get to help folks, but I also hate it because there are folks that reach out to me in dark times. And, and sometimes I don't, I don't have anything but myself in a conversation to give to them. And I pray that that was enough in that moment. Right. So uh, I think we have to get better at having immediate resources, right? Because I had somebody reach out to me a couple weeks ago uh, through my Facebook page, my On Scene First with Tracy Eldridge Facebook page, and and he and he sent the message in Messenger, and and he said, um, I had I had an officer die in the line of duty tonight, and I'm I'm not doing well, and it's like, right, and and so I'm like, all right, it's go time now. I got to figure out where where to get this person in. And, and so I'm like, I really want you to do some EMDR. Like, like I know that it helped me. It may not help everybody, but you got to do something. You have to do something. You can't just sit there. A lot of my things, you know, when folks say it's okay to not be okay, I believe that. And I will preach that from the rooftops, but I add a piece to it. It is okay to not be okay. You just can't stay there. You just can't stay there. And so we need more resources out there, immediate resources for our first responders. There has to be a way that I can leave my shift after a really, really, really bad call and talk to someone who can effectively help me get over that hump. And I think to follow that up, I think, uh, Tracy, I would just uh, maybe ask you a leading question as to if, if you are in... Uh, maybe some of the listeners here are, are, are hearing this message and saying, okay, where do I find some of these if I'm in uh, Oklahoma, Louisiana, New Mexico? I mean, where, what is my first step? What do, what do I do? Well, obviously, if you're in crisis, like if you're, you're in a moment of crisis, call 911, right? Or 988. Those folks are going to be able to guide you and send someone, even if it's just somebody to talk to. I think 988 uh, was something that really got folks, like it was weird, right? So, so 988 is a single point, which is, re, it, it's, re, it's, it's the same as a suicide hotline, right? So people see 988. Well, how do I know if I call 988 or 911? Well, if it's, it's three numbers to call the suicide hotline. Um, there are agencies that are actually transferring their 911 calls to 988 because those folks are trained to handle these situations all the time. They, they get them all the time. Um, one of the things that I am working on, so if somebody does hear this and, and does want to reach out when I give my contact information, I have a spreadsheet that started that will eventually end up on my website where folks can say, I'm from Massachusetts. They go to Massachusetts, they click on Massachusetts, and these are the resources that you, that you have. This is something that is a 
something that I wanted to do and build out. And maybe that's out there somewhere. If it's out there, please tell me. Um, and I'll link a resource to that. Uh, but it would be nice if we could just have a, a central repository place where folks can go, I'm from Massachusetts, I'm from Oklahoma, I'm from you know, Nevada, and I'm in crisis right now. Because I think a lot of times folks that aren't in public safety, they don't know what we're experiencing. They know how to handle a trauma that happened 25 years ago, but I don't know if they know how to handle the trauma that we see and hear and deal with every single day. So, you know, first in crisis, call 911, call 988. The other thing that I'm really adamant about, and this is going to kind of go in a, a little bit of a different direction, uh, but I know I had mentioned at the beginning that there was a moment where I had a method and a means. And I will tell you certifiably 100%, I was not reaching out. I was not going to reach out. Um, there was something that happened that brought me out of the disassociated mindset that I was in. Um, and, and that was really important to my, my recovery and me realizing how much help that I really did need. And I now want to not just tell folks to reach out when they're struggling. I want us to get better at reaching in. And every one of my classes, I, I have a sticker and a phrase that is, I'm all about little phrases and stuff. So, so one of the things that I say at the end of all my podcasts and my classes and my trainings is, hey, hero, stay safe, stay strong, and stay here. We need you. And I have that on a sticker. And when I share the piece of my story to tell them that there is hope, there is help. And, and I am a very different person than I was, you know, eight, nine years ago when I was in the middle of my, my trauma and my PTSD battle fighting to get to the other side. Um, but I hand them that sticker and I tell them that I want them to take a picture of the sticker and I want them to text it or message it or email it to just five people, mm. just five people, text that to just five people. Don't say a word, just text it to them. And I can't even tell you what it feels like when they come up to me on a break and they show me what they got back. And, and I said, I can almost predict what it's going to say. And it's going to say, you have no idea how much I needed that. I, I do. Cause, cause I, there's times that I've needed it. And I hand those out all over the country. I, I have, thousands of them where I will walk up to a police officer, a firefighter, an EMT, a canine. I love canines. Sometimes dispatchers, I can see what they're, you know, I see they got the thin gold line and I will literally just walk up to them and hand them a, or I will ask them, may I hand you a sticker? Cause most police officers and you know, that they, they don't, they don't want to take it. I will ask them, may I hand you a sticker and I will hand it to them. And I will just walk away. I won't say a word. My website's on the bottom of it. And on the front page of my website is the sticker. And it says, if I handed you, if I randomly handed you this sticker, please click on the sticker. And it gives them an opportunity to tell me how they felt. And you know what that does for me? It helps me in my recovery. It shows me that I'm important and that I'm making a difference in people's lives. So it is good to say if you're struggling, reach out, that it's okay to reach out, but we also have to get better at reaching in because not everybody's going to do that when, when the time comes. I think that's an amazingly powerful message right there. I want to, I want to transition this a little bit to, to the leadership side, uh, because I know this is a, this sure. is a strong component of your message that you carry now and a, and a very big part of the passion that drives you. Uh, and I want to spend a little bit of time there. And specifically, you mentioned early on people-driven leadership. I love that. Yep. So just you take the floor for a minute and tell us a little bit about uh, your your mindset, where you take people, what you what you say, what you advocate for leadership, because I think there are some uh, really difficult challenges within our community right now in leadership, given the, you know, the last few years that have gone on. Uh, there's, there's some challenges here. What, what is, what, what do you have to say there? Well, I first want to give out 
give a huge shout out to the people-driven leaders. There are some amazing leaders out there that are doing the right thing. You see them on the, they don't, they don't get the credit they deserve. Right. right? And so I always want to give them a big fat shout out uh, because they're always behind this. They're even further behind the scenes uh, because they're putting their folks up on that pedestal and they're encouraging them and supporting them and mentoring them. And so if you're one of those kudos, keep doing that. Um, And then you have your folks that are just kind of like mediocre. They're just kind of coming in, doing their job. And, you know, maybe they'll do something magnificent or maybe they'll they'll do something mediocre. And and then they're just there. They're not they're not disrupting things, but they're not, you know, moving things forward either. And then you have some folks that are doing a lot of damage, um, like my boss did to me. And I know there's a lot of folks out there that have that have done some damage to their folks. Um, They're not respect. They don't respect their team. They are hurtful and hateful and aggressive um, and not sympathetic or empathetic when it comes to the life that they're living and, and what they're giving to this profession. You know, I think it's, I think when we have leaders that are, um, well, number one, I'll go back is, is a good amount of us were shorthanded before shorthandedness. I'm not even going to say became cool. I was going to say that as a joke, but it's not cool is when we entered this time with over the last three years, right? Things have gotten a lot worse, but we were already shorthanded, right? And so one of the things that I've been doing with 911 centers across the country, and it's very easily easy to do with a police department, a fire department, EMS, McDonald's, right? A dealership, anything, um, is I will come in and do DISC assessments on all of their team members. And again, that DISC is a human behavior model where it identifies um, where you feel the most comfortable. So are you outgoing or are you reserved? So you're going to fall into one of those categories primarily. So I'm primarily outgoing. That's a given. Um, and then the other part is, are you people-driven or are you task-driven? And, and I am obviously people driven. So if you just take that one component of it, D styles, they are outgoing task driven. I styles are outgoing people driven. S styles are reserved people driven. And C styles are reserved task driven. So I can sit in a room or I could sit at a, I could go out to dinner with a handful of people that I just met at a conference. And within a very short period of time, I can almost predict where they're going to fall in their primary letter. If I go to a restaurant and the waitress doesn't come over right away and we're standing there and we're waiting and there's that person that steps forward and is like, where are they? Where are they? Um, Miss, excuse me. That's the D style. The, the D style That D style is only there for one purpose, to eat dinner. They're not there to socialize. They're not there to like hang out. They're there to eat dinner. So they got to get the task done, right? So the D style is going to be like calling the waitress over. Let's sit down. When we sit down and are getting ready to order, um, the... The C style is kind of making sure they're organizing, right? They're making sure that everybody has their silverware. They're making sure there's enough menus on the table. They're the ones that are going to like split the bill and tell everybody what percentage they have to pay or how much you're paying and splitting this. The S style, that person, a behavior they might have, they're that reserved people person. If I say no tomatoes on my salad or could you put the dressing on the side and tomatoes come on my salad and so does the dressing, the S style is not going to tell that waitress, you messed up my food. They're just going to eat it the way that it is. They're going to take the tomatoes off. They're not going to upset the apple cart. And then when it comes time to order, the I style is going to be like, oh, I didn't even look at the menu yet because I was too busy talking and socializing with everybody. So the DISC human behavior model for me became such an amazing tool for this purpose and this purpose only. We spend a lot of time expecting ourselves from other people. And if you expect me to be like you, I'm going to let you down. If you are a task-driven person and you have an expectation that I can be task-driven, I hate tasks. I hate spreadsheets. I hate doing repetitive things. I hate logically putting things in order. Like it, it's my brain just doesn't work that way. 
if you isolate me, if you put me in a corner, if you don't include me in things, then I'm going to be really upset by that. And then I'm going to look needy to folks. So as a leader, knowing who you're, first of all, knowing who you are and what you can bring to the table, both positive and negative, and then knowing who your people are, it is a key to the kingdom. And I'm going to go, I'll just briefly, because I know that we're going to probably have to wrap up soon, but our entire lives, we were taught to live by the golden rule, right? And the golden rule says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, the lie detected determined, that's a lie. We need to be treating people as leaders by the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is treat people the way they want to be treated. Because just knowing, like even just in this short period, I would assume that Austin is more reserved and Brad is more outgoing, right? <laughs> I'm going to send you both the assessment and I'm going to assume that Austin is probably a C style because he's the organizer. He's the editor. He's the, the person that's doing all the tasky things. And, and Brad's going to be more outgoing. He's more of the peoply person, right? So to, to look at this engagement right here, I want to put people in the light of their true potential. So if Austin is reserved and I said, we went to get on the podcast and Brad says, all right, Austin, um, today I want to treat you the way I want to be treated because Brad likes to be the primary host, right? It's where you feel comfortable. You're good at it. You feel comfortable. Austin, I'm assuming you don't feel very comfortable there, right? You'll 100%. interject. You'll interject when possible. We'll bring you in every once in a while. But what's going to happen is if I go back to the golden rule, Austin, I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. Get on the mic, man. Start singing. Have a great day. Smile. And you're like, mm. so I'm going to go back to the platinum rule. I'm going to treat Austin the way that he wants to be treated. I'm not calling Austin out. I'm not making Austin get up on the mic and be out in the front row because that's not where he feels comfortable. So if we could get better at understanding who people are, we would finally see them and treat them in the light of their true potential. We would celebrate who they are versus tolerate. Do you feel like the, do you feel like that's a common occurrence though? To And, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to dumb this down a little bit. I love this concept, Tracy. It's so fascinating, but but oftentimes we as leaders spend more time focusing on what their weaknesses are and pushing them towards those instead of exploiting the strengths of what they are doing yep. well and how can we embody that and embolden that and exploit that to its greater uh, production. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I had, I, I had a conversation with my coach yesterday and it's funny that you said that is there are things that I do in my world that take a long time to get there. And that's that organization task piece of things, right? I run a study group that when I started that study group, it wasn't organized. I was all over the place. There was nothing organized, but in true I style fashion, I was like ready, fire, aim. <laughs> and then I went back and figured it out, right? But I wanted to start it. I wanted to make people happy. And I was excited about it, that impulsive piece of it. And when I first started it, I struggled. I, there was miscommunication. I was missing people on a list. Like, like I was a little all over the place and I was letting people down and I don't want to let somebody down. That's, that's my kryptonite. And I just go back to my days working with um, even the town of Rochester that I worked with or with Rapid SOS is there's this high expectation that you should just be able to do the thing, whatever the thing is. If, if I tell you to do this, you should just be able to do it. And if I can't do it, then in your eyes, I become a failure, right? I, I'm failing at the task that you've given me. And when reality, it was like, maybe I shouldn't have been given that task to begin with. And, and maybe if you saw where I shine, you would put me there, right? So it, go back to public safety. As a trainer, and this goes across every discipline, as a trainer, a D-style isn't going to have a whole lot of empathy for you not doing what you should be doing. So if it's taking you a little bit longer... It's a task that you should have. The D is going to be a little bit more direct and bold and blunt and be like, you should have this by now, 
why don't you have this by now? Most people that have, have this by now. And if that's a reserved person that's on the other side of it, that person is destroying themselves on the inside, feeling like a failure. A C style is very black and white. There's no real wiggle room, right? So if this is the policy, this is the policy, this is the policy. If I deviate from the policy just a little bit, then that C style is going to be all over me. You didn't follow the policy. I'm like, right. But so the policy says if A, B, and C happens, I'm going to do one, two, and three. But this is public safety and not, they don't read the rule book. So, so B was missing and, uh, and I had to add D. And, and yeah, but you can't do that. And then, and now I feel like I've done something wrong. And the I style, the I style is a trainer. They're talking, they're chatting, they're friendly. They'll get it done eventually. But a lot of times we'll look at that trainee that is not advancing. And this comes back to exactly what you just said. We look at that trainee that's not getting it and we blame the trainee. And that's not what we should be doing. We should be looking at both sides. Is this trainer conducive to this trainee? It doesn't mean that D styles can't train. It doesn't mean that S styles can't train. It just means that maybe where they belong in this process is in a different place. Maybe the softer folks in the beginning and the more strict and rigid towards the end when they get it. But, but what you're talking about there takes a little bit of time and effort and energy to know thyself, correct? I mean, yes. first, first yep. we have to know ourselves and then we yep. have to actually be curious enough uh, and, I, and I say that and I use that intentionally because if we're not curious about the people that we're on the other side of the table from, then we're missing so much. And the task folks are not genuinely curious about the person that's on the other side of the table. It's not that task driven folks don't care about me. They value me. They value what I can bring that to the table for them. It's very challenging for task-driven folks to actually see the people that are behind the task. And one of the directors um, that I was working with a couple of months ago, I, I told him, I said, your folks, you have to walk in, you have to intentionally walk into that 911 center because he'll walk in the door, go right into his office, walk through the dispatch center, walk into his office, not even say good morning and get busy doing the tasks. And I'm like, you got to stop that. Like, you have to intentionally walk over and say, good morning. And so I was going to make a post-it note next to his thing. It'd say, go say good morning to your staff. Ask two people today, how was their weekend? <laughs> like it has to, so, and, and then he had said, "Is it? but isn't that fake? And I said, no, it's teaching you how to see the people on the other side. Well, it can be fake. It could, it could be fake. It, it could be. And and to be honest with you, as a people-driven person, I would rather you be fake than not, like, because it causes issues. And I think what you're talking, I, I, this is this is fascinating and, and we don't have time to explore it, but what you're talking about there is creating cultures, creating cultures yeah. of, of uh, well, whatever, really, basically it could be a positive or a negative environment, yeah. you know, fill in the blank therein. I just, I absolutely love this, Tracy. Uh, I wish we had more time to visit, but let's, let's kind of wrap this up by, by giving folks the opportunity to, to dive into Tracy more. Where do they find Tracy? How can they learn more about what you got going on? Or maybe even dare say, uh, bring you out to, to their agencies and train. Where do they find I would you? love that. Um, Onscenefirst.com um, is, is my website. Everything's reachable there. I'm on all social media platforms. Uh, you Google on scene first with Tracy Eldridge and, and you'll be able to, to find me. I, I, I tend to be all over the place. I, I spend a lot of time traveling, going to conferences for 911 and um, speaking nationally. And, and I'm, I'm just super excited to bring these different topics to the space because I think at the end of the day, I, I want to protect people from themselves. <laughs> Well, your heart and passion comes out and, and Austin, I'm disappointed because I was really hoping to get a wicked awesome out of her. I did not get it one time Almost. through the, Almost. through the course of this conversation. Uh, but this is, uh, this, the time has just flown by on this conversation. That's how it usually happens. <laughs>
but no it has been wicked awesome and i am from massachusetts and i always get picked on for saying wicked all the time but um it it, it has been amazing and, and thank you for allowing me to to have my voice heard out there in in a different environment and if i can bring any type of training to your center uh to help help your culture shift i i would be happy to do that so thank you for having me tracy thank you so much for coming on no one fights alone Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.